Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. everyone and welcome back to the history of England at a gallop 1641 to 1642 the descent to war this covers the period from May 1641 to the end of 1642 and was dealt with in 10 episodes between 377 and 386 the purpose of the at a gallop episodes is to give a rather more summarised coverage of the period should you have got a bit lost in all the detail and names or just want to go through the history of England at a faster gallop. So, just a reminder, you do not need to listen to this episode. You do not need to at all. You can simply stick to the numbered detailed episodes. But if you want a refresher or a faster gallop through the period, then this is for you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is for you. In the last At A Gallop episode, we heard about the King's Wars in Scotland, the Bishop's Wars as they are known, as he tried to impose the prayer book and canons on the Scots. These wars led to the need for money and the calling of Parliament to short Parliament first, Charles's last chance, it's thought, for a reasonable deal from the English in retrospect. And then, after the Second Bishop's War, the Long Parliament, when Charles's rule stopped being just personal. We cover the period when the Junto, the leading faction of the reformers with the likes of Warwick, Essex, John Pym and John Hamden, strove to find a peaceful compromise with Charles under the leadership of the Earl of Bedford. Now, if Charles had ever really been prepared to make genuine concessions, they died with the deaths of two people, the Earl of Bedford from illness and the Earl of Strafford from an unfortunate meeting with a sharp implement. Today, we're going to hear about how, after the end of personal rule, politics became personal. 
The death of Strafford in May 1641, in retrospect, forms a watershed. His removal had been demanded by all three kingdoms, Ireland, Scotland and England and Wales, and was meant to ensure the biggest obstacle to compromise was removed and things could move forward. In fact, it achieved exactly the opposite. Without wanting to indulge in plot spoilers, Strafford's death killed any chance of compromise whatsoever. There were now but two options for either party to concede to defeat or war. This sounds like a pretty decent plot spoiler, I must admit. Sorry about that. But look, needs must when you're on a galloping horse. For Parliament, Bedford's death had removed the moderating force, as I say, and the strategy of moderation and compromise was now thoroughly discredited anyway by the King's double-deaning as revealed by the army plot. It meant that John Pym had more radical members of the Junto to keep happy now, Warwick, Brooke and Essex. While they now hoped and expected to complete the Reformation with Charles's agreement, in fact, they would face an increasingly uncooperative king. And they began to recognise that the stakes were never higher. Should the king manage to reassert control over them, a basket might well await the squelch of their severed Junto heads. For Charles and Henrietta Maria, a Rubicon had been crossed with Strafford's destruction. Charles would never forgive himself for going back on his word. It would obsess him for the rest of his life. He would later confide to his friend Hamilton that all the bad things that happened to him after that were God's punishment for this moment of weakness and betrayal of his servant, and he would never compromise his conscience again. Henrietta Maria, meanwhile, having been an immoling influence, was now increasingly fearful of her own safety as the most publicly visible Catholic and increasingly outraged at the behaviour of Parliament. And so she began to give much more bellicose advice as a result. She will put her husband to be more aggressive, to crush these upstart rebels. So, Charles agreed a plan with himself. He would win. That is a positive and ambitious plan, but admittedly high level. So, to put some flesh on it, he would build a pro-king party to defeat the Junto at their own game in Parliament. He and Edward Hyde recognised that the further the Junto pressed reform in their concern to make it irreversible, the more that moderates in Parliament would become uncomfortable and could be won over to the King's side to say enough is enough. So, Charles aimed for two things. First, to split the moderate MPs in the Commons away from the Junto and reformers, and to win the Lords over to his side completely and thereby destroy the unity which had so far reigned between Commons and lords. But there's more actually. Incredibly, Charles also hoped to now win the Scots over to his cause and use the resources of Scotland against the English Parliament if necessary. He was encouraged in this by the appearance of a royalist party in Scotland, particularly around James Graham, Marquis of Montrose. Many of those great magnates in Scotland were outraged at the growing dominance of the Marquis of Argyll. So Charles called the commissioners in London to meet with him, the very day Strafford died, in fact. And to their utter astonishment, the arse covers they had knitted were not required. He was all smiles, soft words and caresses, and promised to come up to Parliament in Edinburgh in person to confirm the agreement that had been made between them and in Parliament in August. 
This was the Treaty of London, and it gave away far more power than had been envisioned so far in England. Pym and the Junto, meanwhile, pressed ahead with their planned reform. They focused on those two hated tools of oppression. They abolished the Church's Court of High Commission, the whip with which Lord had thrashed the buttocks of the Calvinist Elizabethan Church and pierced various organs of William Prynne, and the Court of Star Chamber, Wolsey's Court of Equity, which Charles had perverted to enforce his rule and punish the likes of John Lilburn. This went the same way. One consequence of this, by the way, was that the tools of censorship were thereby completely disabled, and the publishing of radical political and religious print went bananas. Some stats for you. In the 1630s, we have about 600 known titles published each year. Then it goes up a bit with all the controversy in 1640, fair dues, to 840. But in 1641, after the abolition of Star Chamber and High Commission, it became 2,042, and that figure will get higher. It went potty, essentially, and will be a vibrant and extraordinary feature of the revolution and unique to England. The same thing never happens in Scotland or Ireland. Charles was now desperate to leave and to pick up the struggle in England where things were beginning to look up for the prospect of a king's party. Pym was a nimble politician, but the tightrope he had to walk now required levels of agility that Nadia Comaneci or Harry Houdini would have found difficult to manage. He had to appear suitably radical religiously to keep the London radicals and Scottish covenanters on board. And so he had passed ordinances approving Puritan religious changes without consulting the king, and the Root and Branch Bill had been introduced to completely reform the church and to remove the office of bishop. On the other hand, he had to reassure the moderates in the House of Lords that their beloved Elizabethan church was safe in his hands, and therefore the Root and Branch Bill was actually being quietly strangled behind the scenes. But this was all too Machiavellian, and it just wasn't working. The circle was not being squared. Henrietta Maria was in her element, politicking behind the scenes and directing the activities of the King's secretary, Edward Nicholas, much to his annoyance, actually. But it was paying dividends. Moderates were horrified at the wave of destruction and iconoclasm that followed Pym's religious ordinances. The Queen let it be known that the King would not compromise on church reform, control of the militia or his right to appoint ministers. And a growing number of MPs and Lords found they agreed. The House of Lords was now sitting on legislation from the Commons and refusing to process it. Parliamentary unity was under enormous strain. And meanwhile, the need to raise taxes to pay off the disbanding Scottish army was losing Pym and the Junto control in its heartlands. People thought these reformers were against things like ship money, and horror of horror, even the city was now flirting with the king. A royalist mayor was elected in the teeth of the radical incumbents and candidates. As public opinion swung towards the king, Pym was increasingly personally unpopular and even receiving death threats. And a popular libel circulated in the city, angrily sneering that Pym was King Pym and that rogue would set all kingdoms by the ears. But as Charles set off for home from Edinburgh, all the cards were thrown up into the air. 
On the 1st of November 1641, an exhausted messenger stood before the bar in Parliament and brought Dionys. Ireland was in flames. Dublin had been within hours of being captured by rebels. But worst of all, news was coming in of horrendous atrocities perpetrated against the English and Scottish colonists in Ulster. Men, women and children were being killed, driven off the plantations or stripped of their clothing and possessions and left to die in the cold. Now, the Irish Revolt of 1641 is a hugely significant event, and it's a crime to summarise it. You really need to listen to episode 380. Really, you do. But, in a gallop, here's the guts of it. The revolt started as a noble revolt, ironically led by some of the winners of royal policy in Ireland. They were Gaelic lords, but were willing participants in government and even in the plantations. The revolt was an attempt to take a leaf out of the Scottish playbook, to put themselves in a position of power and then coerce the king to make concessions on religion, land rights and financial security. They did not want to overturn the basic structure of governance. But the revolt got out of hand and for several months the ordinary people took control of it and took revenge for the oppression of the plantation's policy and rose up to recover their land, power and pride, and violently so. In the process, maybe 5,000 colonists were killed and a further 12,000 may have died from exposure and cold. There were immediate reprisals and without doubt many Catholic native Irish were also killed, but for various reasons the number is harder to know. Within a few months, the rebellion had spread throughout Ireland and all that was left to parliamentary control was the pale and a strip along the eastern seaboard. This is bad enough, but almost as bad as that, and maybe more significant even, is that the news was vastly, vastly exaggerated by the time it got to England and Scotland. As destitute Protestant settlers streamed through the ports at Chester and Bristol, Pamphleteers told stories of rape, of child murder, of wanton destruction. A hundred thousand people were dead. Two hundred thousand were dead. And they were accompanied by horrific woodcuts. And they were believed. And so a seed was planted that would yield a bitter, bitter fruit. The English and Scots were in a terrified panic. Not only were they outraged at the stories of bar barbarity, but they feared a Catholic insurrection and that a Catholic Irish army would appear at any time and start laying waste to their homes. Something had to be done. An army must be raised. But such a sword as an army could have two edges. No one wanted that sword to be in Charles's hands. Who knew which way it would cut if that happened? So it's in this atmosphere that in November, Charles arrived back in London. The newly elected royalist mayor threw at him a party of massive proportions. And for once, Charles played beautifully to the galleries, as he hated to do it, as we said. He pressed the flesh. He made speeches at the Guildhall. He and the Queen waved and revelled in the majesty of all their gold gilt and apparent royal power and people turned up in droves. Royalists came out from their houses and they cheered and they waved. 
The battlefield was now in the streets of London, as much in the chambers of Parliament, and after his triumphant return, Charles seemed on the verge of wresting back control of those streets from Londoners and preachers and petitioners, those that had so far made it the junto's greatest weapon. In Parliament, Pym tried to seize back the initiative with a massive petition known to history as the Grand Remonstrance. A cumbersome document it was, with 204 clauses. A few months before, it would have passed with ease. But not this time. As you can hear in episode 380, there was a fractious debate that went on late, late into the night. The remonstrance squeaked by with just 11 votes to spare. And no one even bothered to try to get the Lords to agree to it. The Junto were now in a minority in the Lords. When he received the remonstrance, Edward Hyde prepared for Charles a masterly, cool and magisterial reply that made absolutely no concessions. And when this royal proclamation was read out in places like Dover, for example, there was, as they say, much rejoicing. Hey. The people crying out, God bless his majesty, we shall have our old religion settled again. The king had built his party and it was winning. London, though, throughout December, was in a foment. It was packed full of reformados, as disbanded soldiers were knowing, and they were crying out for the king. It was packed with petitioners demanding religious and political reform, and the bishops became a key point of contention. While bishops sat in the Lords, royal power there was assured. While bishops still ran the church with penal authority, Lordian religious repression could return at any time. Radical pamphlets reverberated with the demand for no bishops, no bishops. But the more the radicals clamoured, the more terrified of social and religious chaos moderates became, and they looked to the king as their rock of stability and tradition. It was going Charles's way. And then Charles boobed. After seeing off yet another protest and petition, on the 22nd of December 1641, Charles announced that he was changing the guard at Buckingham Palace, sorry, changing the constable of the tower, replacing the reliable and parliamentary-minded William Balfour that everybody trusted with one Thomas Lunsford. Now, London knew Thomas Lunsford. Thomas Lunsford was a thug and a king's man through and through and with him controlling the city's arsenal, main garrison, and the guns of the tower, no one would be safe. The guns could well be turned on London's streets. A riot of protest erupted. The Commons petitioned for his removal, though the Lords stayed aloof still, ominously. The militia was turned out to quell the riots, but the crowds kept coming, back again and again, surrounding the Palace of Westminster, Parliament, and even the King's Palace at Whitehall filling the air with their complaints and cries. No bishops! No bishops! On the 2nd of January 1642, Charles called a meeting in Whitehall Palace with his closest advisers. He replaced key ministers with loyalists and drew up a plan. He was convinced that the rebels and the people of London had gone too far. He would act firmly now and... All the world might see what ambitious malice and sedition had been hid under the vizard of conscience and religion. The tradition is that it was Henrietta Maria that steeled him to be bold at that point. 
that he needed to stop the mayhem here right and now and that people would respect and support his authority if he did so. Go, you coward, and pull these rogues out by their ears or never see my face again, she's reported to have said. Whether she did or not, on the 4th of January, picture the scene. The Commons was in session, and yet they were interrupted by the tramp of 400 marching boots and the jingle of military tackle. And then 80 soldiers stormed into Westminster Palace, ripped open the door of St Stephen's Chapel, and stared threateningly inside at the Commons. Some of them leant nonchalantly and threateningly against the door jam, gun in hand. And in front of everyone's eyes, Charles himself stalked into the chamber. Now look, this is a moment of high drama in English history, and you simply must hear all about it in episode 381. Charles had come to arrest five members of Parliament, his arch enemies. It was a coup. They were John Pym, John Hamden, Denzel Hollis, William Strode and Arthur Hazelrig. But as he sat in the Speaker's chair and looked around him, he saw none of those men were there. All had been warned, possibly by the Queen's courtier Lucy Hay, and they had fled helter-skelter down the Parliament steps to the Thames and into hiding in the city. I see all the birds have flown, said Charles, and beat a humiliating retreat as the MPs cried out in triumph and outrage behind him. With the failed arrest of the five members, all Charles's good work was destroyed and his party with it. This was tyranny clear and tyranny simple. Through his blundering failed coup, Charles succeeded in reuniting the factions and houses of Parliament against him. He tried to find the five members again the following day, but all of London came out on the, into the streets as he went to the Guildhall. They strung chains across the streets to bring down any royalist cavalry. And eventually, on the 10th of January, Charles and Henrietta Maria realised that they had failed. They'd been beaten and they fled the capital to Hampden Court and then Windsor. There at Windsor, Charles and his Queen contemplated their next move in desolation. Though he tried to call his courtiers to his side, almost none came. One who did wrote that he found a desolate court, not one nobleman and scarce three gentlemen. Charles would not return to London in liberty again. Well, good golly, we should draw a bit of breath. A couple of reflections. Charles had demonstrated that he did have something of a talent as a party leader. He, Edward Nicholas and Edward Hyde, had correctly identified that for many, the reformers were going too far, that there was a deep reverence for the king and his prerogative, and that the king promised social stability against chaos. That although they had rejected Laudianism, yet the reformers were themselves in danger of reforming the church too far the other way. Charles had appealed to tradition, order and stability. He would do so again, as it happens. But equally there is a pattern emerging. Good at leading followers prepared to be of his mind, or a parlement à sa mode, as the French ambassador had once remarked in the 1630s, he was just too inflexible and obsessed with the purity of his conscience to use compromise to create unity. Not just that, but he demonstrated at least three times that he could not be trusted. 
While apparently talking and negotiating, he had thrice planned and sprung a military solution of force. The army plot in March, the incident in Scotland in October, and now in January 1642, the arrest of the five members. An agreement with such a man would be hard indeed to trust. One other observation. This revolution had in large part been made by the people of London. It is interesting to speculate, or I would contend it's interesting to speculate, what would have happened if Charles had convened Parliament in some nice, out-of-the-way place like Oxford, away from the streets of London. His son would follow this tactic most successfully, actually. One of the many news sheets springing up would write, In all England there is but one rebel, and that is London. This is an exaggeration. Parliament was scrupulous in gathering opinion from around the country in a way Charles would not have dreamt of, eliciting over 900 petitions. But London was a hothouse and the most radical city in London. Londoners had come out onto the streets to fight their cause. Newsprint and opinion had exploded, people had found their voice and in a deeply paternalistic society, women had found a role in asserting their equality in religion at very least. It was the people who had upped the temperature. It was the people who had forced Charles into that dreadful error of the failed arrest of the five members of the 4th of January. Oakley Doakley, on with the next bit. Much of 1642 will be something of a Cold War, gradually getting warmer and warmer and hotter and hotter. But early doors, Charles had another plan, and his principal adviser was probably his queen. Henrietta Maria would refer to their plan in the future and comment on Charles's performance against it with some acerbity, it has to be said. Her job would be to get to France, and not for her safety, but to raise money and arms on the continent by selling her jewels and pawning the crown jewels to pay the royal army that was now surely needed. Charles, meanwhile, would get away from London and Parliament's centre of power. He would take himself to the trusty people of the North. There he would gather his loyal nobility around him and expose the rebels for the evil malignants that they were. He would sell his message, God, social order and hierarchy, tradition and church. He would raise an army, but he'd make sure that it was Parliament that broke the peace first to make an act of rebellion that would show the world Charles had no choice but to regretfully take up arms against his own people. It took a while for Henrietta Maria to escape to France, winds and that sort of thing, and while they waited, Charles pretended to negotiate with Parliament, but he had no intention of reaching agreement, and anyway, the physical separation between King and Parliament made that almost impossible. On the 23rd of February 1642, Henrietta Maria finally took a ship to France from Dover. Rather touchingly, Charles galloped along the cliffs of Dover to keep her ship in sight until the very last moment and it finally disappeared over the horizon. Then he turned his horse and set out for the capital of the north, to noble York. In London, the mood was very different when the five members were able to come out of hiding, they were escorted back to Westminster like heroes by the people and the London-trained bands. Flags flying, drums beating, pipes a-piping, possibly a few lords a-leaping and definitely some ladies dancing. Petitions continued to come in from around the country. 
and in London there were multiple marches, with many bearing the 1641 protestation in their hats as a symbol of their allegiance. At the end of January, 400 women marched to present a petition led by the Brewster and Stag, with themes common to many others, majoring on demands for help for the beleaguered and desperate Irish Protestants and removal of the bishops from the House of Lords. Parliament took into its own hands the powers that formerly lay only with the king, so they produced a militia ordinance giving command of the trained bands all around the country to Parliament and appointed the Earl of Essex as their supreme commander. Still, there was an air of disbelief everywhere that this could all be happening. Bulstrode Whitelock spoke for many when he wrote in his diary, It is strange to note how we have insensibly slid into this beginning of a civil war, by one unexpected accident after another, as waves of the sea, which hath brought us thus far, and we scarce know how, but from paper combats we are now come to the question of raising forces and naming a general of officers of the army. People now had to choose, and I commend unto you episodes 382 and 383, which describe how people made those painful choices. I have some brief reflections, though, for this crude summary. Firstly, a key feature of the civil wars is that the division is incredibly local and atomised. Every town, village and family was divided. This will define the progress and nature of the civil wars in England, which are constantly mobile. The map is constantly changing. It's not like two countries slugging it out in a war. A gross generalisation is that north, west and southwest tends to be held by royalists, east and south by parliament, but that hides divisions parish by parish and changes month by month. Secondly, there are no hard and fast rules to define how someone would jump and place their allegiance. You might say there are generalities. So you might say that the higher up the social scale you were, the more likely you were to fight for the king. More Puritans chose Parliament than the king. Artisans in industrial towns tended to be for Parliament. But then many town aldermen everywhere just wanted peace and stability for trade and so supported the king. But the exceptions to all of these rules of thumb are legion. One of the most famous examples is the Verney family, split by the conflict like so many. The son, Ralph, was an MP and a parliamentarian. But he was on his own. The rest of the family might share Ralph's view of the king's actions, but in the end... They could not tear themselves away from tradition. Ralph's father, Edmund, went to join the king, and he wrote, I do not like the quarrel, and do heartily wish the king would yield and consent to what they desire, so that my conscience is only concerned in honour and gratitude to follow my master. I have eaten his bread and served him near thirty years and will not do so base a thing as to forsake him. Charles welcomed Edmund Verney with joy, and made him a knight marshal responsible for the royal standard, 
Edmund stood tall, threw out his chest, and declared, They who would take that standard from him must first wrest his soul from his body. Over the next few months, a war of words developed. Edward Hyde was the king's main wordsmith, and he crafted a masterly reply to the manifesto produced by Pym and Parliament, stating its case, the so-called 19 Propositions. Hyde's answer to the 19 Propositions sold the message that the ancient constitution of king, lords and commons was in danger. The church, as defined by the Book of Common Prayer, stood to be destroyed by zealots, it is deeply ironic, isn't it, that the man who had caused chaos with his innovation in the church with Lord now managed to position himself as its defender. Weird. He also warned that the social order and hierarchy was in danger of being overthrown by common people. The world would be turned upside down. It declared that the common people would set themselves up for themselves call parity and independence liberty. They would destroy all rights and properties, all distinctions of family and merit. Parliament's wordsmith and philosopher, on the other hand, turned out not to be Pym, really, but one Henry Parker, of whom I bet hardly one in a hundred has ever heard, but it was Parker, the observator as he became known, who articulated a philosophy that would be picked up by the Levellers, by the Republic, and by John Locke, and onwards. Power is originally inherent in the people, declared Parker. Nor is the argument about who is really defending the ancient constitution any more the most important thing. What really matters, he wrote, what really matters is that the paramount law that shall give law to all human laws whatsoever is salus populi, salus populi, the good of the people. That is the point of all government. These are the words, these are the ideas that will be embedded in future revolutionary movements and ideas. Now, many people simply tried not to fight at all. Appalled at this violence threatening a society that prided itself on its stability, its coherence and harmony. So 21 of the 38 counties made local agreements not to fight whoever told them what to do so. But none of those agreements would survive. In the end, the historian Mark Kishlansky summarises what people fought for rather neatly, maybe a little too neatly. Royalists fought for the traditions of religion and monarchy that their ancestors had preserved. They believed in bishops and the divine right of kings as the mooring of a hierarchy in church and state. Parliamentarians fought for true religion and liberty. Their fundamental principle was consent, an ingrained belief in the cooperation between subject and sovereign. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
right in. Now, when I were a lad, nubbit knee-height to a grasshopper, sitting on my father's lap and listening to tales of the homeland, the wisdom of the ancients was that the king was bound to win. He had more posh blokes with cash, who knew how to fight rather than, you know, pull a plough or gather up poo in a cart, and he had Prince Rupert and a lot of good horses. So, it was a miracle that the trusty, big-hearted, common man and brave English yeoman managed to put up any resistance at all. Now, my dad was right about a lot of things, never wear brown shoes with a black belt, for example, and the importance of Timio Deneus et Dona Ferentum, but he was wrong here. In fact, Parliament seemed to hold all the cards. They controlled the trained bands of London, the closest thing to an army England had. They did a better job recruiting the trained bands around the country. They had managed to seize control of the Navy through the Earl of Warwick, and they controlled the country's largest arsenal at the Tower of London. And from York, Charles really struggled to raise an army. He tried to use the old medieval commissions of array, authorising local nobles to raise their tenants, and it just looked dodgy and out of date. But he did have one opportunity. The largest arsenal outside London was at Hull, up near him in Yorkshire. And in April 1642, he set off with his lad and heir, Charles, Prince of Wales, to take control of Hull. He was, of course, supreme military commander of all forces. When he arrived, he found to his annoyance that John Hotham, the governor, had closed the gates against the supreme military commander of all forces. Outraged, Charles demanded access. But Hotham had been supported by Parliament and was on their side, and so he refused. Steaming with humiliation and steaming with fury, Charles was forced to ride away. But the event though humiliating, served a purpose for Charles. Hotham and Parliament had refused the direct orders of, what was that phrase again? Oh yes, the Supreme Military Commander. To Charles's mind, this was the declaration of rebellion that he had been looking for. Charles went on a recruiting tour, and then on the 22nd of August, he ended up at Nottingham. And it was there that Charles, on a cold, wet and rainy day, announced that he had come to suppress this rebellion and he had his knight marshal, Edmund Verney, unfurl the royal standard. Around 30 people watched him do it and listened to the speeches, water dripping from hats and noses. Then, when finished, they left to get out of the rain. Overnight, the standard blew down into the mud. It wasn't a great start, but the starter gun had been officially fired. They were off on the wacky races. While Charles made his way to Shrewsbury in the west of England, there to muster what forces he best could find, the world was not standing still, particularly in Ireland. And you might want to hie thee to episode 386 to find out more detail about what was going on there. But to cut a long story short, Pym and Parliament found a way around the conundrum of how to get an army to Ireland while not wanting to hand a sharp sword to the king and while spending all of your available time and money to pay an army to fight a civil war against the king. The answer lay north of the border. Many of the Ulster planters were Scots and the Covenanters felt a powerful sense of responsibility and brotherhood to defend their people. So by July 1642, the English had agreed to share the cost of a Scottish army of 10,000 men to be sent to Ireland. 
In principle, those men would report into the head of government in Ireland, James Butler, the Earl of Ormond. But in point of fact, they did no such thing. The new Scots listened only to their own hearts and to the Marquis of Argyll in Edinburgh. Elsewhere in Ireland, the war had achieved some level of stalemate, march and countermarch, burning fields and scorched earth with the Irish in control of most of Ireland but without the power to seize Dublin. The war was taking a terrible toll on the population. The Irish commander in Ulster, Owen Rue O'Neill, described the land as not only like a desert, but like hell, if hell could exist on earth. The number of factions in Ireland is fiercely complicated. The new English in Dublin, the old English, mainly in rebellion except families like Ormond, Clanrickard and Tomond, the new Scots in Ulster, the native Irish, and then a new faction. People like Rue O'Neill were exiles returned from the flight of the Earls in 1607, fired up with the idea of the counter-reformation they'd gathered on the continent and the complete return of papal authority, supporters of what was described as the clerical party. But despite their wide net patchwork of different backgrounds and objectives, for the moment, the rebels were able to sink their differences. And in Kilkenny, in June 1642, they established an association, a new government, the Confederate Association of Ireland. And they declared that they were Irish united for God, King and Country. As you can tell from that, they were essentially conservative. They wanted to change the existing status to gain toleration for their religion, confirm their land rights, but they wanted to continue to live under the authority of the king and the same basic structure of society. For the Confederacy, it's important to remember this one big point. Write it in your heart. That the defeat of King Charles in England would be a disaster for them. Nothing could be worse for them than the establishment of an island under the rule of a Puritan English Parliament. Charles must win the Civil War in England for them to have any chance of a bright future. He must be in control for them to negotiate a deal with. Back in Blighty, the transformation in Charles's situation between raising the standard in Nottingham on August 22nd and his position and outlook in October 1642 it's extraordinary. I mean, it's zero to hero sort of stuff. The courtiers around him saw him go through the full gamut of moods and emotions. At the end of August, with just a few hundred men around him and a rather muddy royal standard, he had been reported to be in agony at the thought he would be forced to negotiate with Parliament again. In so great an agony, he had not slept two hours the whole night. His despair was probably not helped by the stream of letters from Henrietta Maria urging him to do better. I should never have quitted England because you will have rendered my journey ridiculous, having broken all the resolutions that you and I have taken, save going to York and there doing nothing. But what a change by the start of October. Now it was reported by one, I never saw the king better in council. There was a feeling of bullishness. This was going their way. A councillor wrote to a friend, The king is of late very much averse to peace. The king had changed his recruitment strategy and turned instead to his great men. This meant, for example, that in the north, the super-rich William Cavendish, Earl of Newcastle, was made governor of the four northern counties and he spent money like water. 
tens of thousands of pounds to create an army of 2,000 white coats, against whom the parliamentary leaders, the Fairfaxes and the Hothams, clung on fearfully and only just by their fingertips. In the southwest, the royalist Ralph Hopton successfully seized control of Cornwall and would then use that to build a base when he came into conflict with his old friend, the parliamentary commander William Waller. Meanwhile, in Shrewsbury, the greater magnates of the realm had arrived with large contingents of armed men. The Earl of Derby, for example, bought three regiments of foot from Lancashire. Landowners in Wales, Cheshire and Staffordshire recruited 11 more regiments. And many Catholics responded too. I mean, it has to be said, they had very little to thank the King for. In fact, Charles had publicly declared that no papist of what degree or quality soever shall be admitted to serve in our army. But he fibbed, frankly. He'd take what he could get. And it would be a public relations problem, it has to be said. But in the short term, it was bacon saving. Catholics raised money for him as well. So in the counties around Shrewsbury, they paid over 5,000 quid to him as advances for recusancy fines in the future, which feels a little odd, doesn't it? Sort of, you know I'm going to persecute you next year. Could we bring that forward a bit? But now Charles had an army, is the point, a substantial army of around 14,000 strong. And now they were well equipped because Henrietta Maria had come up trumps. She had strained life and she had strained limb in the Low Countries and in France, and raised enough to send a huge shipment of supplies, armaments and artillery to the northeast, which was then transported over to arrive at Shrewsbury. And last, but probably not least, Charles had been joined by one of the great names of the royalist cause, his sister Elizabeth's son, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. He'd joined him, bringing 2,000 men with him. Now, Rupert has been described as a thuggish toff, but he had verve, he was thoroughly committed, six feet tall and rather beautiful. There's a lovely line from his biographer that even his mother remarked on Rupert's angelic appearance. Even? Even? Isn't that exactly what mothers do? Isn't there something about rose-tinted spectacles? Anyway, tall, athletic, handsome and, more to the point, skilled in mathematics and well-read in military methods from the Thirty Years' War. And it was Rupert that won the first military encounter of any size at Powick Bridge on the 23rd of September, and so confidence was sky-high when Charles and his council decided that now was the time to advance on London, take it back from the Webbles, and regain his kingdom. On the 12th of October, Charles issued a proclamation to his army of 14,000, saying to each that he shall meet no enemies but traitors, most of them brownists, Anabaptists and atheists, such as desire to destroy both church and state. And they moved out from the city to march the 160 miles southeastwards towards London town to reclaim Charles's crown. Cry Harry and all of that. Well, what, might you ask, what of Parliament and their army? Well, in London, Essex had been gathering men and militia, training and doing his best to equip them at camps covering the artillery grounds and Tothill fields outside the city walls. 
he inspired confident Dilar Essex. He had experience from the Thirty Years' War, though he would prove to be a toe-curlingly cautious commander, and for good reasons. He hated the death and pain he'd seen in the Thirty Years' War. So the well-being of his men was important to him, and they loved him for it. Around the muster fields, his coach was often mobbed by adoring crowds. Essex would save them all. God bless you, Robin, they cried out. And on the 9th of September, preparations done, banners flying, Essex left London and started to pursue his king with orders to rescue him from the evil counsellors surrounding the poor lamb. By October, after more well-needed training near Northampton, his army, also of 14,000 now, stood between the king and his prize. And on the morning of the 23rd of October 1642, Essex was camped around the village of Kyneton, preparing to go to church, as you do. And then, breathless reports came in that just a mile or two away, at the top of a large scarp called Edgehill, stood King Charles and 14,000 of his closest friends and family. It was time. Again, the Battle of Edgehill is a complex and thrilling piece of history, so I really advise you to hear all about it in episode 384, but let me give you a version that has been trimmed and potted. The first thing of note is Charles's rather cack-handed management of his leaders. His supreme commander was the Earl of Lindsay, but in a pre-match squabble, Charles instead deferred to Rupert. Lindsay got the hump, threw every toy he could find out of any prams within reach, resigned and took up command of a foot regiment opposite Essex. There he would have his leg blown off and die of his wounds. Charles often deferred to Rupert and generally gave his commanders too little clear direction. He was much given to making suggestions rather than issuing orders. This will be a problem. Nonetheless, the Royalists moved down from the hill to offer battle because it was quite clear the parliamentarians weren't going to charge up it. Generally, foot were in the centre with pike and musket. Artillery, such as there was, dispersed along the line. Cavalry was on the wings and, crucially, held in reserve. This reserve cavalry is important. We'll come back to it. So, Rupert commanded the cavalry of the Royal Right Wing, Jacob Astley commanded the foot in the centre, and in reserve was Lord Byron's cavalry and the King, plus, of course, Edmund Verney, Knight Marshal, Royal Standard firmly grasped in his right hand and his soul. Also close by, the royal physician, William Harvey, circulation of the blood guy, was quietly reading a book by a bush. Ha! Huh, who'd have thunk it? So, Rupert's royalist cavalry swept the parliamentary cavalry from the field, and the same happened on the other wing too. Now, the way I was taught, these unruly toffs then spent all their time sacking the baggage train, looking to pick themselves out a nice pair of silk knickers, rather than getting back to the proper business of winning the battle. The story is all about wild, uncontrolled Rupert sort of thing. But I now learn that this was standard. Reassembling cavalry was pretty much impossible. They were all over the place after the charge, and the horses were probably blown anyway. So defending the foot and making good use of any offensive subsequent opportunities on the field was the job of the reserve cavalry. Remember we mentioned them. That's what they were there for. 
but at Edgehill on the Royalist side, they weren't anymore, because Lord Byron, seeing all the fun, gaily took the lifeguards and joined in, tails up, cheering and whooping, heading for the silk knickers of life. And so they were not where they should have been for later. Anyway, sensing blood and victory, seeing the cavalry swept from the field, Sir Jacob Astley, the Royalist commander of the infantry in the centre, drew a deep breath, and he bowed his head momentarily. O Lord, thou knowest how busy I must be this day. If I forget you, do not thou forget me. And so another famous quote of the Civil Wars was born. March on, boys, he then yelled, and so they advanced 10,000 against 6,000 parliamentarian foot. It was push-a-pike and continual raking musket fire, blood, mud, screams, howls. And at this point, Essex, playing it by the book, with his reserve cavalry still by his side, note bene, Lord Byron, counter-attacked and saved his own in infantry from defeat and put Ashley's under serious pressure. At this point, exhausted, the fighting paused and Essex withdrew northwards. It was too late for Edmund Fernie, though. He had been caught up in a vicious hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the chaos caused by the cavalry charger from the centre and left exposed by Byron's absence. He fought doughtily the old fella and wielded the standard as a pike. His manservant was killed beside him, but he cut his killer down, then embedded the standard in the guts of another soldier but was overwhelmed, went down, and the royal standard fell with him. This was a coup. A parliamentary ensign, Arthur Young by name, seeing the royal standard fall and overjoyed at this stroke of luck, leapt forward to take the standard as a trophy back to Essex. But try as he might, he could not tear it from the dead, cold, relentlessly loyal grip of the dead Verney. So... He hacked off the hand and took the standard back in triumph and presented it to Essex. The rest of Vernon's body was never found by his family after the battle, and before long, over the battlefield and in the woods at his home at Claydon, was seen the ghostly figure of Edmund Verney searching eternally for his lost hand. But more immediately, although in many ways a draw, Charles held the field of battle and so really felt he had a win. Essex had withdrawn northwards towards Warwick. He'd lost 1,500 men and seemed to have been pretty mauled and beaten about and needed time to recover mentally and physically before moving off once more. So, the road to London lay clear. Charles had a chance now to make a dash for London, undefended by Essex's main army, and maybe end the war early. That is precisely what the young blood Rupert of the Rhine suggested. Unk! he says, Unk, let me take a flying column of cavalry and catch them unawares. Slightly oddly, with hindsight, or maybe impressively wisely, there was a faction, including Edward Hyde, that urged that this would be the wrong thing to do. No, no, no. A peace would be impossible to build if the king returned as a conqueror. They needed to mend fences. No, instead, the king should immediately use this opportunity to negotiate from a position of strength with Parliament. Charles cogitated, as kings do, and said, Nope, not going to do either of those. Instead, we're going to dawdle. We are going to take strategically insignificant castles like Broughton on the way south. Then we're going to set up shop in Oxford, which will be our capital while this bit of unpleasantness lasts. And we'll get on to London 
when we get round to it, when the time is right. What do we want? Victory. When do we want it? In due course. That sort of thing. The consequence of this is that when Essex picked up his skirts and those of his remaining 12,000 men and legged it, he was able to outstrip Charles. And on the 7th of November, 1642, London went potty because their hero and saviour, Robin, rode into town. By the time it arrived, it might be noted, his army was but 7,000 men. An interesting feature of Civil War armies is that, in the words of historian Ian Gentles, the armies of both sides were like mushrooms, shooting up almost overnight and then disappearing even more quickly. Desertion, fear, lack of money, DIY work back home calling, all sorts of reasons for that. Essex returned to a town that looked rather different to the one he'd left, because London had already heard of a massive defeat for their forces and immediately ignored the big friendly button saying, don't panic, Instead, they ran around like chickens running backwards. The House of Lords immediately proposed a peace delegation to go to Charles with a truce while talks happened. The Commons were also sitting in the closet of funk, and so they agreed. Better safe than sorry, though, what London needed was walls, and so walls they must have, before the King came to call. And so we have one of the most remarkable events of the civil wars. I mean, that's a personal view. No one else seems to think that. But I love the story, the building of London's new walls, or the lines of communication, as they were called. I think it's amazing. You can find out about this and the Battle of Tottenham Green in episode 385, and even hear a few lines from Samuel Butler. Now, you might point out that London already had walls. And yes, you're right. But they were thin walls, medieval walls, not designed for artillery. There'd been no proper fightiness in Blighty for, like, ever, so no one had thought to build new town walls, a common story around the country, actually. Plus, they were too short. London had grown. And so, basically, all London turned out and started building nice, thick earthen walls that could swallow cannonballs, plus strategic towers at various points. 11 miles long it would be when done. Trade organisations arranged days off work with rosters and men, women and children all traipsed out to the lines being drawn out, bearing shovel and barrow. The Venetian ambassador watched it all happening and wrote home with amazement. At the approaches to London, they are putting up trenches and small forts of earthwork at which a great number of people are at work, including the women and children. All sorts of people and rank joined in. 3,000 porters, for example, had their wheelbarrows, and so they pushed them all out to the wall to help. The oyster women came, as one observer wrote, a thousand of them, all alone with drums and flying colours, their goddess Bologna leading them in a martial way. By the time Charles arrived, there was a serviceable defence that had been built. Not the finished thing, that would be completed the following year with stone towers added, but all done in pretty much the same way. The community pulling together, not to do their best, but to do what was required. And then Charles did arrive. The peace delegation from Parliament had met him at Reading, but been sent away with a flea in their ears. Charles was on a roll, on top of the world, in control. Not for him, Hyde's namby-pamby negotiation idea. Everyone in London knew he was coming because they heard the gunfire from Brentford on the outskirts. 
And those names we've heard before in Parliament or in debate now appear as captains. Denzel Hollis and John Hamden were at Brentford, for example. Their regiments mauled and sent helter-skelter by Rupert's advance, as Rupert's men fired and sacked Brentford, as Rupert's men were wont to do. You'll hear that again. John Lilburn was captured in the fight and taken to Oxford to be executed as a traitor. As it happens, just so you know, his wife Elizabeth Lilburn, in just one of the many occasions she pulled her husband's irons out of the fire, talked Parliament into offering a prisoner exchange, got a letter from them, and then walked the 60 miles to Oxford and got Honest John out of prison and made him freeborn John once more. But at the village of Tottenham Green, now an unremarkable West London burb, the people of London were gathering. London was not defenceless anymore. In fact, at Turnham Green, it was a carnival. The common land between Chiswick and Acton was stuffed, with Essex's remaining experienced soldiers, the militia of the London-trained bands, militiamen who'd come from the surrounding counties, Hertfordshire, Essex, Surrey, and a mass of green, barely-trained apprentices who had signed up in the previous few dames from London. So, all in all, there were 20,000 people or so in total of various flavours of readiness, martial skill and resolution. And this was the site facing Charles's army when they arrived. As they deployed, Essex and the commander of the London-trained bands, Philip Skippen, rode up and down the lines and Skippen steeled his men for the coming fight. Come, my boys, come, my brave boys, let us pray heartily and fight heartily. I will run the same fortunes and hazards with you. Remember, the cause is for good and for the defence of yourselves, your wives and children. Come, my honest brave boys, pray heartily, fight heartily, and God will bless us. For hours, the two armies stared at each other. The odd cannon roared out from time to time. As time passed, it came to lunch, and over a hundred wagons arrived from the city laden with drink and hot food. Bulstrode Wallock recalled, The city goodwives and others, mindful of their husbands and friends, send many cartloads of provisions and wines and good things to Turnham Green, with which soldiers were refreshed and made merry. A crowd of spectators had gathered behind the apprentice boys, two or three hundred of them, Every time any part of the Royalist army advanced or deployed, they panicked and would gallop away towards London as fast as they could ride to the discouragement of the Parliament's army and divers of men would steal away from their colours towards their home and the city. And then at last there was movement on the Royalist side. But it was not towards London. They were leaving. There were too many Londoners Facing them down, Charles had missed his big chance and Londoners had stood shoulder to shoulder in the face of the danger and turned him aside. Within a few weeks, Charles and his court were back in Oxford preparing for the campaigning season of 1643 that would surely bring Parliament to heel. In London, despite the victory at Turnham Green, there remained a fear of the bloodshed that now clearly beckoned and which they had seen at Edge Hill. A march of 3,000 people presented a petition of peace to Parliament, which was sent to Charles. In Parliament, a peace party was emerging among the Lords and MPs, and they set about preparing a list of concessions as part of a new offer of peace. And we'll hear about Charles's response to those pleas, and whether or not further bloodshed can be avoided on the next 
at a Gallup episode, or indeed, you can simply segue straight to episode 387 and find out about it all there in glorious detail. Before I leave, let me remind you of the core episodes, but also that you can listen to all of my podcasts free of adverts and access over 100 hours of extra shedcasts by becoming a member at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Also, you would thereby support my work and make me happy, which is surely a good thing, capital G, capital T. So that's thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Until next time then, gentle listeners, thanks to all of you for listening. It's very lovely of you for all your comments and reviews. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 